Section 1 of On Famine, Fever, and Some of the Other Cognate Forms of Typhus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. On Famine, Fever, and Some of the Other Cognate Forms of Typhus by Rudolf Virchow. Part 1. Twenty years have passed since last that form clad in terrors, famine fever, appeared among us. In vain do we seek to deny its presence now in one of our German provinces. Behold it, that dual nature in which seem to unite the two most terrible scourges of mankind, famine and disease. It is no longer the pauper inhabitants of villages and small towns merely that are exposed to its baleful influences its empoisoned breath has already touched others in a higher station witness the doctors and nurses who have fallen a sacrifice to their devotion and still science is reproached for taking no cognizance of famine fever it is for science to rebut this charge wherefore let it be our task this day to vindicate the truth and throw such light on it that to us at least no blame may attach but does science gainsay the connection between famine and typhus? It would be hard to attempt to gainsay a thing for which, since thousands of years, the history of mankind has ever and again supplied new examples. I do not mean by this the so-called universal history, as it is mostly taught in schools, and of which a French admiral lately said it was little else but a story of wars and treaties. Fortunately, that is not the opinion held in Germany, England, and America. And after having repeatedly heard, even from the mouths of government officials, that the Prussian schoolmaster bore his full share in the victories on the Bohemian battlefields, it is not asserting too much when I say that the history of warfare is merely the external history of peoples. Their internal history is made up from very different sources. On the one hand, it notes the glorious victories of civilization, the progress of the human mind and knowledge, that we call the history of culture. On the other, it preserves the remembrance of the ever-new impediments in the path of life, of the painful sufferings of humanity. That is the history of medicine, known, I grant, but by few, though not therefore a less instructive branch of general history. In our present inquiry, we must follow up three courses of investigation, for from the terrors of famine and pestilence, the third, war, is never far off. Like three brethren, the apocalyptic riders, they go forth to kill, with the sword, with hunger, and with death. Camp fever is a mate in all respects worthy of famine fever. The one cannot be disjoined from the other in a scientific inquiry. Within the memories of many still living, they have always been thought of as combined. Thucydides, speaking of the Athenians when they were visited by the great pestilence, which swept away Pericles and numerous others besides during the Second Peloponnesian War, B.C. 430-25, says, In those times they remembered themselves of the following saying, which, as the oldest inhabitants gave out, had been foretold a long while ago, 
come will, a Doric war, and hand in hand with it the plague. Now he goes on. People contend that in this saying of the ancients, not hunger, limos, was meant, but plague, loimos. An idle contest for they, dearth and famine, prevailed as well as pestilence. The popular saw of the Middle Ages was more correct. It ran thus, war, pestilence, and scarcity. Do ye hear of the one, soon the other you see. And there was opportunity enough in the Middle Ages of testing the correctness of this rhyme, for for many a century the history of wars and sufferings alone chronicled the fates of nations. We call them the Dark Ages, because the history of culture found little or nothing for her pen. As the light of knowledge grew brighter, the intervals between the wars became longer. The prolonged terms of peace quickened the intercourse between nations and promoted agriculture, industry, art, and science. Notwithstanding the increasing dearness of corn, famine became rarer, and at last so rare that even the old proverbs dropped into disuse. The famine in Upper Silesia, 1847-48, was the first in Germany for more than seventy years, the last great famine fever having raged in the years 1770-72. Camp fever had not yet reappeared since the great Napoleonic campaigns, when of a sudden, before Sebastopol in 1855 and 56, it broke forth again with all its ancient virulence. Amongst the other rich blessings which a long and prosperous peace had bestowed on nations was also that of a higher condition of health. Two generations had passed, and pale famine had not reared her head on German soil. Was it astonishing that even in science the old knowledge once possessed had fallen into abeyance? In the course of this long period, medicine had made gigantic strides. Whole new territories of science had been annexed. Pathological anatomy had come into being, teaching to note the changes in the internal organs with a far greater closeness and precision. New methods of examination at sick beds were introduced, rendering the diagnoses more nicely discriminative. New names for diseases came into vogue. Well-known terms, hitherto bearing a general and vague meaning, were sharply defined and restricted to one idea, while others which had a limited signification were widened and generalized. Such had been the case with the word typhus, a very old one. We find it in the writings of the oldest Greek physician which have come down to us, in Hippocrates, who was living during the time of the Athenian plague. It literally means fog or vapor, and figuratively from that, a clouding of the mind, insensibility, likewise a condition of the brain, in which its action is hindered or impeded, as when the consciousness is obscured and dimmed. We often say our head is so dull and heavy, the thinking powers obfuscated. It used to be supposed this dullness or torpidity of the brain was accompanied with fever, or was a necessary condition of the same. Anyhow, the word upon the whole was little in use in ancient times, and still less in the Middle Ages. In modern times, however, it has been more frequently employed. Though it first came into general use during the great Napoleonic Wars, 
when it was chiefly applied to war typhus or camp fever, which disappearing with the years 1815 and 16, the name was retained and applied to other fevers, otherwise known as mucus, nervous, and such like. These were likewise described as a strong fever accompanied with obfuscation of the brain and great relaxation of the nervous system. To avoid confusion, permit me for the present to call this manner of attack in contradistinction to the above home fever, Friedenstufus. About the last year of the war, 1813, two Frenchmen, Petit and Serre, discovered that the abdominal organs, namely the intestinal glands, suffered material changes under this fever. Not long afterwards in Germany, where similar observations had been made in the last century, the fact of these changes in the organs was confirmed chiefly by von Pommer and Schönlein, and thereby the conviction gained that this phase of the disease was essentially the enteric typhus, typhus abdominalis iliotyphus. It lasted, to be sure, some twenty to thirty years before this conviction was generally accepted. At present, it is a common scientific acquisition. What, meanwhile, has been done for camp and famine fever? For many a year, no opportunity, either in Germany or France, offered for more exact investigation, and in England, where it did exist, it was not observed with due attention. However, the plague of 1848 in Upper Silesia, the fever in the Crimean armies in 1856, furnished the experience, which had meanwhile been made in England, that those changes in the abdominal organs which were the unfailing accompaniments of home typhus, did not appear. Thus was the fact established of there being two different kinds of typhus, the one of which, our common typhus, having nothing in common with either camp or famine fever, while the other certainly did present points of connection. In a former work, I have called this second simple typhus, in contradistinction to that enteric typhus known by its complicated changes in the intestinal organs. Now the question arises, are camp fever and famine fever one and the same disease? The difficulty of answering this question has been considerably aggravated by the circumstance that for a long time, fortunately, no proper comparative observations on these two forms could be made. Later, when the opportunity did occur, it appeared that the cases generally stated as famine fever were again divisible into two different groups, only one of which, it seemed, could be classed along with camp fever. Let us consider this one. Juan Girolamo Fracastoro, a doctor of Verona, was the first to make a circumstantial description of a pestilential fever which broke out in Upper Italy in 1505 after a failure of the crops. From a peculiar eruption which came out, consisting of red flea-bite looking marks, morbus peticularis or pedicularis, the people gave it the name of the flea-bite fever, which is the origin of the term petechial fever or petechial typhus. In Germany, the term spotted fever was usually employed. In contradistinction to the typhus abdominalis, the name exanthematic also came into use. In fact, 
the eruption is frequently so excessive that inexperienced persons, nay, unskillful medical men, have mistaken this illness for measles. The connection between spotted fever and dearth was acknowledged from the very beginning, though from considerations bearing upon atmospheric changes and the altitude of the stars, to which even in those days a still greater significance was attached in the opinion of the learned, it never came into sufficient prominence. The terrible plague in the years 1770 to 72, which desolated the whole of the north and a part of south Germany and France, left no further doubt about the connection between the same with dearth and failure of the crops. Those were years of great calamity. Summer cold, winter with hardly any great frost, for the most part dull damp weather with such floods of rain in all low-lying districts that unheard inundations were the sequence. The following are the numbers of rainy days in the respective years from 1768 to 1772, namely, in 1768, 177, 1769, 201, 1770, 208, 1771, 175, and 1772, 166, accompanied by an invariably low state of the mercury, continuous west wind, and the light of day almost constantly obscured by trains of flying gray clouds. In the middle valley of the Elba they reckoned in 1769, nine, and in 1770, only five, and in 1771, ten quite bright days. On the 30th of May the thermometer reached only four degrees, and on July 12th a heavy fall of snow came down on the Hunsruck. The foremost consequence was a total failure of the harvest in the year 1770. The scarcity of corn soon increased to all the terrors of a true famine, more especially in the Altmark, Eichsfeld, throughout all Bohemia and Moravia, Hanover, the Rhenish provinces, and France. Arendt, the head physician in the town of Heiligenstadt in the Eichsfeld, has left us a very lively description of his impressions, of which the following is an extract. Never shall I think but with horror of the misery of our country, of the afflicting, distressing, and cruel condition of our fellow countrymen. Those who sickened lay without hope. Hay, second crop, garden fruits, vegetables, and grain were spoiled and rotting. The farmer beheld his labors, which had cost him the sweat of his brow, perish utterly and miserably. Floods of calamity, the most dreadful of them famine, rolled over their heads. You could see the grain on the stalk just sprouting, but unseasonably, and only partially dried by the heat of the stove, they were taken and consumed by the famished poor to appease the cravings of hunger. The scant remains were garnered damp, the chopped straw could scarcely be used at all for fodder, while it was impossible to save the thrashed grain from rotting. The former was dangerous for the cattle, the latter for men. The consequence of three such successive years of failure of the harvest was an incredible dearth, inconceivable alike to the oldest people as to their descendants. The most terrible distress, in short, the extremest famine oppressed the poor. Trade came to a stillstand. 
all the channels of gain were closed. The complete want of money forbade the enjoyment of bread. A sixpenny loaf could not suffice for one person, much less for a whole family. For there was no nourishment whatever in the dear Lieben bread. It was no wonder, then, that these wretched creatures, in order to support their miserable existence, should take to food fit for cattle and against nature. I mean, for instance, grass, thistles, and unwholesome sorts of cabbage, bran porridge, roasted ryegrass, vetches, and other grain fruits made hot. Nay, the distress at length compelled them to resort to that fare on which foxes feed. All that was unaccustomed and abnormal nourishment and had a material influence on what we call the fever. But the fever which spread far and wide and which by contagion passed to the better classes was described in pretty similar terms by all observers under the name of spotted or putrid fever. Ireland likewise was visited in the year 1771 with the epidemic spotted fever. I admit that this fact has only recently excited our attention, only indeed since we got to know that it constituted the heading to one of the chapters of human misery. Since now almost two hundred years, Ireland may be considered as the principal seat of the famine fever. It is not too much to say that as Egypt was from the plague, so has Ireland ever since 1708 been desolated with ever new visitations of this most malignant of epidemies, the typhus fever, petechial typhus. No other country in the world can be even distantly compared with it in this respect. Public attention and solicitude were chiefly directed to this point since the plague of 1817 through 19, when 44,000 individuals perished and the eighth part of the entire Irish population sickened. At that time several cases occurred also in Edinburgh and London. Since when, new epidemies have followed in quick succession, among which the inconceivably virulent one of the years 1846 to 1848 calls for notice. It first appeared after a widespread failure of the potato crop, the total of those who were seized throughout the whole country was calculated at more than a million, 40,000 being set down to Dublin alone. The poor Irishmen left their green island in crowd, but whither they went, the typhus went with them. Above 300,000 had been seized in England, chiefly in Liverpool, where 10,000 died. In 1847, 75,000 Irishmen emigrated to Canada. Well nigh 10,000 of them perished partly on the way out, partly in quarantine. But all could not prevent its being brought into several American towns. Simultaneously with this Irish plague, although in no immediate connection with it, famine fever showed itself in Flanders and Upper Silesia, spreading as an epidemic. Since 1836, the population of Flanders had not been in so prosperous a condition, owing to the factories having supplanted the handlooms, and 1845 witnessed the complete victory of machine labor over that of the hand. Close upon this came, in 1846, the total loss of the potato crops, and but a very indifferent grain harvest. The distress became so great 
that in many places the inhabitants could only find turnip parings, dandelions, cabbage leaves, carrots, diseased potatoes, sometimes a little brown bread to eat. Nay, many families could not even procure themselves these luxuries every day. Here the epidemic broke out, and the summing up at the close of the year 1847 showed that the population of West Flanders, in consequence of the numerous cases of deaths, was reduced to the standard of 1841, and the population of East Flanders to that of 1842. Of 60,377 who were seized, 11,900 died, that is, almost 20%. The potato disease had come to Upper Silesia in 1845 and repeated its visit the following year when the distress became so great that the circles were forced to make loans to enable them to distribute flour to the poor. The annexation of the free state of Krakow by Austria and the subsequent imposition of duty blighted all of a sudden the hitherto flourishing linen and woolen trade of the small towns. The poor people had to sell their cattle. Then the store of sauerkraut, the favorite food of the lower classes, likewise came to an end, and nothing was left but diseased potatoes, clover, and scarcely eatable fruit. The opening of the summer excited great hopes, but copious falls of rain and inundations came later. The potato disease broke out anew. In short, the harvest was a complete failure the fever now broke out. When I published my report in the summer of 1848, the following was the picture I drew. A desolating epidemic and a terrible famine are raging at the same time amongst an impoverished, ignorant, and dispirited people. In the canton of Pless died in one year ten percent of the population, six and a half of starvation and fever, while the official lists tell us of one and three-tenths of downright starvation alone. In the district of Rubnik, 14.3% of the inhabitants fell sick in eight months of the fever, of whom 20.46% died, and it was officially corroborated that a third part of the population had to be wholly maintained for six months. In the beginning of 1848, the two districts reckoned as many as 3% of orphans, 33 doctors, as many priests and brothers of charity and other helps and assistance were seized, and not a few of them paid their charity with their lives. The total number of those swept away by famine and disease in the province is computed at 20,000. In all these epidemies, the number of which we could easily swell, it was the spotted fever with its well-known symptoms that decimated, nay, more than decimated the people. It was therefore a natural connection of ideas that the term famine fever or famine typhus, typhus famelicus, or famine plague, should repeatedly come to be substituted in learned treatises, or by the people, for that of petechial typhus, exanthematic typhus, and spotted fever. End of section 1